Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never, ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. My guest today is Ryan Bruce, a.k.a. Fluff, who's a guitarist, producer, YouTuber, and uh, a well-known face in the URM community. But not just that. He's also the guitar player in a band called Dragged Under, which uh, just got signed to Mascot Records. He's been on the podcast many times. He's made courses with URM. You know his YouTube channel, Riffs, Beards, and Gear. I present you Ryan Bruce. Fluff, welcome back. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. How's life? It's changed a bit, hasn't it? For me, honestly, not really. No, I mean, I don't mean COVID-19. I mean the band. Oh, everyone's talking about the fucking, the vid. So I was like, oh, uh, no, not really. Business as usual. Yeah, things have, uh, things have really ramped up in the last, oh, geez, I don't know. What is it? April now? The last two months, last three months have been... Seems like the past six months. Yeah, yeah, if I'm honest, it all started about six months ago. But if you rewind before that, it's actually almost exactly a year ago where the ball started rolling with the, the band stuff. And it, it's been nuts ever since. It's been this, like this weird snowball effect where it just gets bigger and bigger. And then you're like, oh, shit, it's, we're actually rolling downhill. Okay, cool, stop pushing. It, it'll do it on its own. So you guys changed your name. We did. This is something that back in the days when I was in a band was suggested to me and I was very much against it, but I've seen bands do it and then suddenly go from not having a career to having a career. And it's really, really crazy because I feel like the industry will look at certain bands that might be good, but for some reason they look at them as damaged goods. And if they change their name, they're no longer damaged goods, which is really, really weird because it's the same people. Yeah. And granted, you guys changed your sound and you're better now, but it's really, really interesting to me how the name change thing is a legitimate thing to do if you're in a band and things just don't seem to be working out, but you have connections. Uh, it's it's weird. I, I suggest it to people and they get really weird with me, probably the same way I got yeah, I was pretty resistant to it before we were dragged under. I mean, this is technically like it's a whole new band. However, it came out of the ashes of my old band, uh, which and we were called Rest Repose. The, the huge differences were 
Rest Repose had Jared Dines in it, and we had toured. We had done everything DIY for three years, and we were absolutely looked at as damaged goods. Everybody would roll their eyes and go, oh, it's that stupid YouTube band, and then write us off. Now, granted, our songs were not as good as and written for the live show. As yeah, you're maybe, a lot better now. We are. We 100% are, but... Interestingly enough, the first four songs that the world heard, uh, the first half of the Dragged Under album was written when we were still rest re technically Rest Repose. And we decided to totally change our sound. Jared had left the band, and Chris, our drummer, had left like a week later. And it was me, Josh, and Tony. And we sat in the studio, and we had a big snowstorm last year. And we basically got snowed into the studio for five straight days, just going out of our minds. And there, there was only... There was a convenience store two blocks away from the studio, so we would just go and get like a bunch of energy drinks and Thai food and just rage until six o'clock in the morning. So they had Thai food at the convenience store? No, it was uh, there was this Thai place right next, like I was right nearby. Say, I'm not sure I would trust <laughs> Thai food from a convenience store. Seven Eleven sushi, man, it's great. That You'll be sounds fine. fucked. Cleansing. Um, yeah, <laughs> but um, we had our producer Hiram come up. And Hiram had been filling in for bass on the last Rest Repose tour that we did with a band called I Set to Kill, who we were opening for. And we really, really hit it off, and we got along. He really kind of understood where we wanted to go. He showed up, and songs just poured out of us. And we were just passing around a guitar, slamming energy drinks, and like going for broke because we just had no fear of what our sound should be. We were just trying to write some cool stuff that we thought was catchy. I feel like... If you go down a path with a band name as a band, you kind of almost get locked into certain tendencies, yeah, consciously or subconsciously. But by changing the name, it's really is like a fresh start to where you can kind of go anywhere you want. We we were still rest repose at this point. However, we got the demos done, and we really really liked the music. And we just started sending them out, sending uh, the four demos out to our friends, just because we're like, "Hey, check this out! What we think we're, we're doing is pretty cool." And Joey Bradford, who's the guitar player in The Used, and is a friend of mine, he was like, "Man, this is really, really good, guys! Like, let me show this to the rest of the band. I'm at rehearsal right now." And he shows the rest of the the band. And Bert, who sings for the used, immediately said, "You guys could actually do some really great things if you change your name." And and we were He's like, "Smart." Oh, oh, wait, what? Really? Because we'd been really, I'd been really resistant to that. So it had come up before. It had come up before. Joey had suggested it, and I was like, "Absolutely not." It's my baby. I don't, you know, I was too emotionally attached to it, and I had to just kind of let that go. And the second Bert from the used says, "You should change your name," uh, I was like, "Okay." We should. I'm a huge used fan. And having him say, you know, these are really good, but you need to change your shit and just start fresh. Because as he pointed out, you will forever be known as Jared Dines' old band if you don't do this. And he was right. And so we just decided to start totally fresh, new sound, right for the live show. Honestly, man, that was my concern for you with this whole project was getting out from under his shadow. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, Not at all. Not it, at is all. What, it is what it is. The dude's got a massive YouTube mm -hmm. channel and he's kind of become like a force online. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're known as well, but people did kind of know it as Jared Dines' band, which absolutely kind of sucks. 
so I'm not saying that he's not a good musician or anything like that. I say this with all due respect, but because he has a comedy channel, I think that some people may not take his music as seriously, which will make it very hard for you because uh, you actually take your music seriously. Now, Again, I'm not saying that Jared isn't serious about what he does. No, he's very I, serious. Yeah. yeah, he's obviously, you can't get to where he's gotten no. by not being serious, but that comedy thing will typecast you. And you don't want to be a so, you don't want to be like the comedy guy's discarded band. Yeah, I, I love, I love Jared. And we spent years of our lives together and in a, in a van. And we did some amazing things together, but we simply just wanted to do something that wasn't associated with him. That, that's all. And he understood that as well. Yeah, he's smart. He was so encouraging with the Dragged Under thing, and he let us practice it in his garage when the band first started and had nowhere to play. He let us set up in his garage and let our, and, and keep our stuff totally set up. And like he was so gracious and cool about it all, and he was very, very supportive of everything. That's great. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I'm not surprised no, at all. No, he's a great dude. I'm not surprised one bit. It's interesting, too, that I feel like everyone I know in the industry has only said good things about Dragged Under, and I haven't heard any reference, and I mean in, like, back channels, I've heard zero reference to Jared or Jared's old band or any of that stuff, which means to me that the rebrand was 100% successful. Yeah, I think you're right. I agree with you. I had uh, I had our friend Machine text me. Machine, the producer? Yes. He texted me. He was like, dude, is Dragged Under your band? And I was like, yeah, why? And he was like, dude, someone was just showing me this stuff. And I, and I went on your Facebook and I see you in the pictures. And I was like, wait, what is he doing here? Like, what? I thought he was in that other band. You know, people have no idea and they're discovering it discovering the band organically, which is all that we ever wanted. It's just word of mouth. Hey, these are really good. You should check this out. That's all we wanted. So it's been pretty cool. Well, congrats on that. I'm glad you did that. I feel like if you didn't, you'd still be piddling along. I agree. And thank you. Yeah. I never thought that you didn't have it in you or anything. There's just this thing that happens in the industry where, I mean, not to get redundant, but that damaged goods thing is very, very real. Like, Managers will not fuck with you. Labels will yes. not fuck with you. Bands will not take you on tour. Yep. It's not like a blacklisting. I don't actually think there's a such thing as getting blacklisted in the industry um, because it's too disorganized of, a, of an industry. Like people on the outside will talk about it and throw their weight or talk about people throwing their weight around, but I don't think there's an actual blacklist because there's no actual boss or real power structure. <laughs> there's, there's no Google Doc. No, there's no Google Doc or no memo that gets passed around. <laughs> but a lot like the way that producers get big through word of mouth or bands get big through word of mouth, the word of mouth about a band uh, in the industry makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, no, 100%. And with the rest repose thing, uh, the, the final nail in the coffin was we got this huge tour offer right at the end of the life of the band. And one of the stipulations in the contract was Jared had to be present for all tour dates and, and Jared had to like make con I can't even remember like it but it was all basically like yeah we'll take your band on tour but we want to make sure Jared does these things and we were if just Jared like Jared makes comedy videos with the headliner once a week. Yeah dude it was it was nuts and we were just like okay this is bullshit. Like we can see the writing on the wall now. So they basically wanted 
Jared to come make media on the road and we're going to let your band tag along as like, yes. yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, and, <laughs> and, fuck and that shit. dude, that was, yeah. Jared was just like, dude, fuck that. Like, what the hell? Like, if you like the band, you, you like the band, but if not, then fuck off. Yeah. It was weird. How did that make you feel? It makes you feel like shit. Honestly, it just, I don't know, man. It demoralizes you pretty heavily. Yeah, like what what were your thoughts? Like you're like you're working really fucking hard towards this band and then you get a like an offer that's like the thing you've been working for but it comes as a fucking backhanded insult. It's like Yeah, that yes, that's exactly what it was. It was a backhanded insult. I was just like, dude, I we want to tell you guys to fuck off on principle. Yeah. We eventually did. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, not trying to bring up bummer stuff. I find every part of somebody's journey to be fascinating cuz uh I think lots of people get discouraged by the amount of shit you have to eat in any creative field, really. There's no timeline on how long these things take. And, uh, you know, you're in your late 30s, right? I am, yeah. Okay. And it's just starting to happen now. Yeah. Which is awesome. So weird. <laughs> it just, yeah, well, yeah. I ju I'm just saying that because it goes to show that that whole concept that you've got to be 23 is bullshit. Dude, it's 100% bullshit. And I, kinda, I try to keep in mind that, like, you know, Rick Nelson was 33 when Cheap Trick recorded their first record. It's not the end of the world that I'm a little older than everybody, but I'm glad I'm not some idiot 22-year-old yeah. partying. And like, because I was stupid as fuck at 22, and most of us were. I feel like I was stupid up till 36. Dude, honestly, same. Yeah. And then you wake up one day and go, oh, shit. I get it now. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, at some point between 35 and 40, you become not a kid anymore. But uh, I feel like... <laughs> And I don't know if this was different in different generations. It probably was, but I feel yeah. like in our generation, you don't become an adult till about 35-ish. I would agree with you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird. I, I don't really <laughs> understand why it works that way. Because I used to remember when I was like 20 and playing in clubs, there were those dudes that were like 35 and they were like the old guys. Like the old, right. old guys, like stop doing it. Like ship has sailed. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that just doesn't seem like the case anymore. No, you're right. That's an, that's an interesting observation. I remember being, shit, 18, playing shows and doing small regional tours. And like some of the guys in the other bands were what I thought were ancient, like like almost 40, like, oh man. And they were, you know, usually leather jacket, washed up. They'd clearly drank too much and done too many drugs. And like, you know, it's just, I don't think that's, that's not the norm anymore. There's no leftover 80s guys that are still, I mean, I'm sure there are still doing it, but. They're definitely out there. Yeah. But they're 60 <laughs> now. I think it has to do with the fact that, well, number one, the industry as a whole doesn't tolerate bullshit like it used to. So in the past, really bad behavior was glorified. Like I remember in the 90s, it was cool to be a bipolar heroin addict. And mm -hmm. depression was like worn as a badge of honor. And remember, this was mass media back in the 90s like with those bands. You're right. So depression is not something to wear like a badge of honor. It's a fucking mental illness that people die from. But in the 90s, it was, uh, you know, it was cool for people to say that they had it and it was 
cool to have heroin addictions in the 80s. Cocaine and alcoholism was like cool. Yep. It was cool. Yeah, absolutely. I do not think it's that way anymore. Granted, there are obviously, we know people who have overdosed on pills and oh, yeah. that happens, but there's a stigma about fucking up now. And I, I feel like in the industry, people will not take a chance on you anymore if they know that you're like that, uh, unless there's a ton of money to be had. there, But there's not enough money now to tolerate it the way people used to. Can confirm. Yeah, I've, I've seen it firsthand, especially just even since we've been uh, doing the drag under thing. Like, you see other people in other lanes, and they'll fucking... It's like you're storming Normandy, and you're in your own plane, your plane is the band, and there's other bands that are in other planes, and they're just getting shot down, and they're going down in flames because someone had a fucking drug habit or someone... You know, someone broke into the car of some, you know, booking agent or, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> if you fuck up, like, you're you're done. Yeah. That's it. Well, exactly. And I think because of that and also because of how much information is out there about living healthier lifestyles, that yeah. people are just healthier now, which makes them age slower. That's, I really think that's what it is because we're not. You're right. We're not genetically different than people 20 years ago. No. Right. We're. It's all the same. I think yeah. lifestyles have changed. I mean, yeah. Granted, there's the obesity epidemic in the U.S. and stuff, but I think that a lot more people are a lot more health minded than maybe they've ever been in like a very conscious, intentional way. Yeah. Agreed. And keeps you young. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool, podcast over. Done. Thanks for coming out, guys. Yeah, dude, when I was getting signed, I was like 27, and I remember Monty Connor saying something like, something to the effect of me needing to get signed now before it's too late kind of thing, like <laughs> before I'm like too old for it. God. It's just interesting to me how that's, how different that is now. Yeah, it's totally changed. Honestly, like bands still signing stuff is you don't really hear about that as much nowadays as you used to. It used to seem like labels used to sign bands by the dozen and and saw what stuck and then drop everyone else. Yep. But now, like, it's so hard to do any of that stuff now. It's uh, you really got to fucking earn your shit, I guess. I think they definitely still need to throw some darts because you can never predict. But sure, I think. Uh, I think Blasco said it best. I was talking to him once, like, a long time ago, and he was like, there should be an industry-wide signing freeze for a year. This will never happen, but oh. all the labels should get together and say no new signings for one year and then just focus on their bands that actually deserve the focus uh, because too many bands had been signed. I think between, like, 2007 and, like, 2013, dude, I man... When I was at yeah. Audio Hammer, we were getting these baby bands sent, and like I'm the one who was being asked to work with them because uh -huh. the people I worked with were beyond that for the most part. And these were bands that were not ready to be signed. They were basically local bands with a record deal. Oh, and God. I remember I actually I burned a couple bridges because I uh, I said this to the A and R guys. It was like, why? are you sending me local bands? Like, thank you for the work, but this band is not ready to be signed. Like, why are you fucking uh. with them? Like, what are you doing? You're hurting the industry big time. So that is different than back in the day. Like, think of bands like Deftones or Korn that were developed by labels and they got in early because now, like, you have to have 
you have to be so self-sufficient now to even get anyone to look at you. But like, you know, back in the day, and obviously this is a different time and place, but like, you know, the Deftones have been around for seven or eight years by the time they got signed by Maverick, but Korn had been around for three years, two years. Yeah, but if you remember with Korn, they were annihilating the underground before they got big. True. You you would see them pop up in like metal magazines and it was like, who the fuck are those dudes? Why are they opening for Megadeth? What the fuck? Yeah, like it made no sense. Like who are these fucking weirdos? Yeah. But their shows before getting signed would be like completely sold out and people would be going true ape shit. Like true. the second coming of Nirvana or something. Yeah, yeah. So I think that they had the same thing that the MySpace bands had. Like, do you remember like Suicide Silence, yes. Chopper Cowboy? Yes. All those bands, how huge they were before they got signed. True. But I feel like Korn, Deftones, those bands, they had that underground following. I think it's been so long that a lot of people don't realize that, but Korn especially were an underground band and they would play with Megadeth. They'd play with death metal bands and... Yep. Somehow yep. there there was just an energy about them. So to me, it made a lot of sense to sign Corn, even if they weren't quite ready to be big time. I think whoever signed them had to have gone to some shows and seen that the audience was fucking exploding and that there's something new that's going to happen and develop these guys. Yeah. That's not like the bands I'm talking about that I was recording. The bands I was recording were like shitty local bands who could draw 30 people and they sucked. <laughs> <laughs> They're like clone bands, basically. <laughs> clone bands. Clone bands, yeah. I think that there was a period in the industry where everybody thought that it was going to disappear and so the labels were just signing clones yeah. of bands that and I guess that happens in every era, but it was like a 15 to 1 ratio, like mm-hmm. one originator, 15 clones. So for like every Whitechapel and Suicide Silence and Job for a Cowboy, there were like 60 bands behind them that shouldn't have been signed, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, so so our singer Tony is uh, friends with Post Malone. and You mean John Brown? Yeah. I mean, John Brown. Uh, no, he, so uh, he asked Post, uh, why did you sign with Republic uh, specifically? Tell me about Republic. What are they? So they used to be, back in the 90s, they put out a lot of alternative music, but they basically let everyone go in the early 2000s and kind of have focused on hip hop. And I think only recently in the last couple of years, they have signed, I think they've signed like some huge Huge uh, hip-hop and pop artists. I believe, I want to say, Taylor Swift just uh, went with them. Okay. But in the, like five years ago, they were kind of small. Not small. I mean, compared to like Warner or Sony or some huge major label or something like that. But Post had a video go viral for uh, his basically his first single that he made. And Kanye West was sharing his video and stuff like that. Anyway, he was playing these incredibly packed, sold-out shows. And the reason he said he went with Republic was because Republic's A&R guy refused to take no for an answer because he couldn't get in. So he scaled a barbed wire fence to get into the show to talk to Post. And he said that is what made me go with them because they really fucking wanted it. And they were as stoked on my music as I was. I've always thought that you're going to do better with the smaller label or smaller manager yeah. who will kill and die for you. Yes. 
than to be the bottom at the bottom yes. rung of like a huge company. Hundred percent. Totally agree. Yeah, that happened to us. We signed with a booking agent that was way too big. Didn't get shit out of it. I've seen it happen to my dad. Like he got a, I remember in the 90s, he got this lawyer named Joel Katz. And Joel is one of the most successful music industry lawyers of all time. He had like Christina Aguilera and like Matchbox 20. Okay. (laughs) Tony Braxton. Yeah, like it was one of those dudes but he didn't do shit for my dad because why would he? He's got more important things to worry about. Lame. No, I don't think it's lame. I get it. Yeah. There's only 100% of attention that you can devote to anything and you're going to devote it to the stuff that makes you the most money probably, right? For sure. It's, it's lame in that uh, it, it's wasting people's time though. That sucks. I think that in some cases, people like the signers are doing it with the best of intentions. Sure. I mean, maybe sometimes, but I don't think that they're consciously taking on an artist with the idea that they're then going to just neglect them. I think right. they take it on with the best of intentions, but just really don't have the time for it. Yeah, you're right. I agree. Man, I know that a lot of people talk shit about the business side of the industry, and I will too. But I don't think that the people on the business side are as evil as they've gotten a rap for. I agree with that. Now that I have seen a lot of the back end of the industry and worked with with people, it's not as malicious as it probably once was in, like, say, the 90s when they were just out outright trying to, like, con bands and assigning stuff it's not like that anymore and there's always or like the 60s or oh man yeah dude <laughs> you want to talk I about everything bands. <laughs> like wait i recorded yeah. the albums though but yeah that car that you're driving that's mine I'm like fuck yeah no way that would suck read your contract kids read your contract <laughs> what's your opinion on this and i realize that this it's a different era but still the concept is the same in my opinion when we signed a Roadrunner, we did a seven album deal. And I know that that sounds insane, but they didn't do anything but seven album deals for baby bands. That's Slipknot did the seven album deal, right? Damn. So just hear me out. Okay. My theory has always been that you're not going to get a good record deal at the beginning of your career. So you might get a good record deal with a label that can't do shit. But if you're with a label that can do a lot, if you don't have momentum of your own, like real momentum, like actual, actual, actual momentum, there's no possible way that you're going to get a good deal. You're going to get a shitty deal. What happens, what I was taught is that if you are then successful, you renegotiate once you have leverage. And that's, you know... Lots of bands have done that. You're getting signed to Roadrunner. How are you going to strong arm them? You're not. <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah, yeah. Leverage is important, and if you have leverage and you have actual momentum, you can leverage that. But man, if you have anything less than that, seven album deal. My God, I didn't know that. I didn't know any of that. Wow. Yeah, seven. Fuck. Uh, the way I saw it was, if we last long enough to make seven albums on Roadrunner. That means we did great. <laughs> True. Like Kill Switch Engage, I believe. Slipknot. Slipknot. Fucking God. Those are the only two bands that I'm aware of. Big Machine Head. I was going to say did. Machine Head, yeah. 
Damn. That was kind of my point. It's like Roadrunner would just drop you before just shelving you. I did a lot of research on them, and maybe there's a couple bands here and there that may have gotten shelled, but all in all, Roadrunner were very, very good about dropping people. That's good. They dropped me when I asked them to drop me. Huh. I mean, that's cool. I flew up there and had a meeting with them and was like, look, we know you guys aren't going to push the band more, and that's fine. I completely understand. But uh, my name is in this contract, and it's preventing me and the other people in my band from doing other things and continuing our career as musicians. So can you please let us out? Like, It's not like you want to do anything with the band and no hard feelings. We love you guys, and we get it. For sure, yeah. They were totally cool. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, all right. Speaking of labels, you just got yourself into the uh, the coveted and elusive bidding war. Yeah. It was a weird thing. When we left for that used tour, there was no... There was like a few really small labels that were kind of like, hey, we really like the record. We really like what you're doing. But at that time, the record was going to come out in like a week. And they're like, well, we wanted to delay the ramp or we wanted to delay the release. And we're like, look, we've been ramping on our own for six months with singles and like the record's done and uploaded and like it's scheduled to hit Spotify in a week. Sorry. Like we are going to stick to what our vision is of the album. And a couple of labels were the real, real small labels were just like, okay, well, whatever. See you later. And then uh, we start the tour and I'm, I am proud of how we sound live. Our live show is fucking awesome. And we will climb the trusses. We'll, we'll do, We'll do the crazy shit because we just love the live show so much and the music is so conducive to the live show. So we start in San Diego and play a show, play a show. People are hitting us up and um, you know, we're getting we're getting some emails coming in like, hey, we really like what you're doing. Cool, thanks. Thanks a lot. From labels? From labels. Okay. Manager folk, which they didn't they weren't aware that, you know, Joey from the use is already managing us. How were they hearing of you guys? So they were hearing uh, about us by seeing videos that people were posting of the live show or they were already following the used and just happened to see the band. So, but it wasn't through you groveling for it. No, not at all. It was very organic. Like I just happened to, I was outside doing something important and I heard you, I heard a song and I came in and I thought, wow, this is really, really cool. And we're like, okay, cool. And that was pretty much the extent of it. So it starts in San Diego. We go up the West coast and then we basically head straight East and play ourselves over to New York. And by the time we get to New York, there are a dozen, There's a, a, I think that show in particular had a dozen labels or booking agents or managers in the crowd on our GL asking to come see the band. And we were like, what is happening right now? But this, this could all be bullshit. This could be bullshit. So let's just stay focused. Let's, let's play a good show. And that's about it. But... At the end of the day, like, so that the tour ends a couple of weeks later, and we have, oh man, I don't want to see the exact number. I think it was like seven actual in hand record deal offers. Like uh, memos. Memos. Deal memos. Like, y- yeah. yes, yes. We had like, like seven deal memos. It's not real till there's a deal memo. It, there, there, were, there were actual deal memos, and here's our offer. Here's a hard offer. Fuck yeah. Uh, and we had seven of them from seven labels, some very big, some very small. And everything in between. And um, it was surreal and wild. And thank God we have good people around us and who are guiding us. Eric Germain, 
and uh, Joey Bradford. Is that how you say his last name? Yes. It's not German. It's German from what I... I had no idea. Yeah. Holy shit, <laughs> all these years. So this is interesting to me, man, because this is something that has been an idea that's like known. Like it's better if they come to you than you go to them. However, it's very, very hard to get people to understand that. And you're kind of living proof of it right now. Yeah. Because yeah. you were beating your head into a brick wall with rest reposed. Yeah. And then now people came to you. It starts with the songs. I always thought it was bullshit that, uh, you know, oh, if you write a good song, people will come. That's actually 75% of it. Um, we were playing. It is. The, the second show was at the Troubadour uh, of that tour, of the used tour. And, uh, you know, Sold out, the used are playing very, very small places for this tour. And we're loading our gear. Eric comes up and he introduces himself. And he's like, hey, I'm, 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 I'm Eric Germain, blah, blah. And, and uh, we'd emailed once or twice and it was really, really cool to see him. And we're loading and Travis Barker and Machine Gun Kelly and John Feldman get out of their Range Rover that they pulled up right behind our trailer. And they get out and I was like, oh, aren't you going to go say a hi to them? He's like, no, no, no. I'm here. I'm here to talk to you guys because you guys were just fucking you killed it. And okay. I want to come and, and introduce myself. And then he grabbed a case and and fucking helped us load. All right, <laughs> that's kind of surreal, dude. You know, for those who don't know, like Eric Tremaine is like one of the best and most worked entertainment lawyers in the biz. Like he works with you know five yeah. finger death we've punch. Had, we've and, had him on the podcast before. Oh, really? you. Oh, okay. Okay. Episode. 136, you are on podcast, Eric Germain. I met him through negotiating against him with uh, <laughs> with my lawyer. But the thing that was, Eric was always really, really cool to me. Even like when, you know, it was us versus his side, he was always really, really cool. And I always thought that he was, you know, how what people think of lawyers, like he's not that. He's like a good no, dude. No, he, he wants... He wants the best for everyone involved, whether he's on the winning side or losing side. And he really actually gives a shit. And he took our baby band on and him and Joey are guiding us uh, like like a mom and dad would. It's really, really cool. So, um, yeah, we're, we're signing with uh, a label called Mascot, who a lot of people may not know as well as like, you know, the Sony's and the Epics and the Epics. It's a good label. It's a good label. They really, really, really genuinely give a shit. The whole team came out uh, to New York. We met them. We broed down super hard. And they're most famous for fostering the career of Volbeat. Mm -hmm. And the first, uh, the first three Volbeat records were on Mascot. The first couple of Gojira records were on Mascot. Uh, they have Joe Bonamassa and P.O.D. and... A lot of blues stuff. Yeah, Mascot to me is like the perfect size label for a band like yours because they're not so small that they can't do anything. Uh, they're big enough to where they can actually do something for yes. you, but they're not so big that you're going to get lost in the shuffle. No, and there's no other band that sounds like us on that label versus other labels that would just probably put us on a fucking package tour that they do every year and then, you know, whatever. But... um you know, Ron at Mascot has been super, super, super cool. And he's 
the reason why we're stoked on mascot is because he is so stoked on us and he's just like an actual just music fan dude who will text Joe and be like, dude, what are they doing right now? Like, hey guys, what are you up to? And like that, you know, he checks in on us and like it's awesome. And like he really, really it's just yeah, they're the best. Can't say enough good things about them. I mean, this is so cliche, but having the right team behind you is crucial. Yeah. I remember I was trying to get signed to Metal Blade at one point, and I was sitting in Mike Faley's office, and he gave me a speech, and I listened. <laughs> but he, he was like, he was basically telling me why they wouldn't sign us, and I totally understood why from what he said. He was like, so basically a band is like a vehicle. You've got four tires. One tire is the manager, another tire is the label, another tire is the lawyer, and the other tire uh, is the booking agent. And uh, if any one of those is flat, your vehicle is not going anywhere. Bans the vehicle. Wow. And you guys only have two out of those four, so we're not interested. We think you're cool, awesome band, but we've learned over the years that unless... All those conditions are met. You couldn't get them arrested if you tried. And uh, I really, really respected that. And it made me look at at the whole process of being in a successful band yeah. differently. Because, I, well, first of all, I do believe that the cream rises to the top. I have never heard a local band uh, that should have been signed but wasn't. I've never heard like that undiscovered local talent that is just like the greatest ever who just never got a shot. Yeah. I'm sure it's out there. I have never encountered it. Like everyone I know who's had like something to them has gotten a shot. And then what they do with that shot, now that's a different story. But typically when you see bands that have been around for a long time and they just can't seem to ascend, but they're good, but something well like they've been at the same level for 15 years right or something right usually it's there's some dysfunction in their team like the band itself are just like they sabotage themselves or they have a really stupid manager or their booking agent doesn't have the right kind of power they get advised into making bad moves like there's a reason it's not it's not random like there's always no. a reason no i think um I mean, I can only speak for myself, but you know, for a long time, like you know, I'm used to booking, you know, the tours, the doing the financials, doing all the paperwork, like literally, like full on DIY, and it was very hard for me to let go of some of those things. But you know, in in the end, it's worked out. You know, there are always people that know way more about any given thing than you. Always. Now, with your own band, obviously, you're going to know your music better than anyone else but as far as like and your vision and your vision but negotiating contracts or finding the correct booking agent who really gets your music you don't you someone knows better than you about placing you in national markets and, and things like that and um dude the book honestly out of this whole thing management label booking agency the booking part is the absolute toughest finding a booking agent that isn't a piece of shit is literally the hardest struggle. I agree. Oh my God. I never ever in a million years thought that that would be the bottleneck for anything I ever did. But Holy shit. So that, okay, 
that is where I have seen the stereotype be true. Yes. About the business end of things. Man, I have been involved with some booking agents that I am amazed they're alive because (laughs) nobody killed them yet. (laughs) And they have had their asses kicked like bad for the shit that they have pulled on people. I'm not going to name names, but a very famous now singer in a really well-known band who is fucking jacked, hospitalized this booking agent I'm thinking of because of uh, some shit he pulled. But man, he deserved it. And it's not the only time that it happened to this guy. It, It happened repeatedly, yeah. Because he kept fucking people over and like really fucking them over. Man. So he would do this thing like, you know how booking agents will collect some of the deposits? Uh-huh. Yep. To guarantee dates and they'll collect like a certain percentage of the deposits on guarantees. Yeah. So basically, if you guys don't know what this means is uh, when bands graduate to a touring level, they get paid a guarantee, i.e. a guaranteed amount of money per show. It's not like door deals or anything like that. Right. And a booking agent will secure like maybe 25% of the deposit money to basically solidify the tour. But then they're supposed to give you your cut of it after, right? That's how it works. (laughs) This guy would just not give bands their cut of the deposits afterwards. Imagine not getting 25% of what you're owed after a tour. That's a lot of money. That could be the difference especially for smaller bands between paying your cell phone bill and not for the month. So some band dudes who had more violence in their souls uh, handled him a few times. Yeah. Along with the surrounding, you know, ourselves with good people, uh, Dave Shapiro from Sound Talent Group just took us on and is now our booking agent for Dragged Under, which is like... All right, then. That's great. Dave is an absolute legend and one of the sweetest dudes in the industry. Um, he started off booking shows back in the early 2000s for literally every Warped Tour band Man, ever. And I'd love to have him on the podcast now that I think about it. You should have absolutely have him on his, on the podcast. He's one of the most humble, nicest dudes ever. And, uh, and he jumps out of airplanes. And he jumps out of airplanes and flies and owns several airplanes. And yeah. it's just... Oh, dude, he's the—he's an absolute legend, and um, he again—he heard the record, and just based on the music, goes, "Man, you guys are fucking sick. I want to book you." What? That doesn't happen. But uh, fucking Dave Shapiro, dude, he's the best, and he books all of our favorite bands. So, shout out to him. So, I think that that's that's really really important. Is when you're with a booking agent that you're with a booking agent who a either has bands they can barter. So for instance, mm-hmm. they can leverage that they have a really big band that someone else wants to take on tour and have you included as part of the deal. Yes. Or they have bands that you want to tour with and they can include you. But a good booking agent has to have those two, in my opinion, those two conditions need to be met before you sign with a booking agent. Yep. Agreed. Otherwise, why? Pro tip for anyone who is dealing with booking agent issues uh, on the lower level, something that Restropose used to do is incentivize our booking agents. And whatever our guarantee was on, like for the night, let, let's, let's just use an arbitrary number. 
if they get us $50,000. Yeah. $200, $200 guarantee, we would right away give them a $200 bonus up front when they locked in the dates. So we would give them a one time out of our own pockets. Here you go. Here's $200. Thank you, money, for getting us the tour or locking in the dates or whatever, because we found that that little bit of money, because normally the booking agent is making his money after the tour is over. So wait, wait, oh, hold on. Let me understand. Okay. So uh, say that he gets you 10 dates at $200 a pop. You would give him basically a $200 tip, like yes. so basically one night worth of the guarantee. Yes. And then afterwards, his percentage. That is correct. Okay. And that would stoke him out. That would always stoke out anyone we worked with to get us on the tour, the bill or whatever, because they're going to get paid right now. And then they're going to get their normal pay on the back end after the tour is over. So that's six months from now or whatever. Yeah. One thing that people on the business end complain about a lot, and it's a real thing, I get it, is the reason they're afraid to take on bands is because bands are unreliable. They might break up, you know, the singer might quit. But at the beginning, they're kind of going to be working for free to it mm-hmm. or for really, really cheap. So they kind of don't want to do two or three years worth of work no. to then have it fall apart or kind of make nothing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think that that's, that's really smart. So back to the whole thing about the songs are where it starts. You know how a lot of people th- will say that, uh, like they don't actually believe that because there will be bands that, I guess, get signed that they don't like. <laughs> right. I've always thought, well, just because you don't like them doesn't mean that they're not good, first Ex- of all. Right. Just because you don't like them doesn't mean that there isn't an audience for them. Right. So I've always thought that the genre isn't what matters. It's how good you are within that genre. So a lot of metal elitists will be like, look at all this pop shit, that blah, blah, blah. But hey, if you're doing pop, be the best at it. Then you'll have a shot. If you're doing metal, be the best at it. Then you'll have a shot. I've talked about it before, but I've always uh, made the food analogy. Like, you know, I can't be a Thanksgiving dinner, but I, I am... I am a Snickers bar, and just because, you know, <laughs> at Thanksgiving, you know, dude, a, I hate a, Thanksgiving anyways. So. But but a slice of turkey is good. But sometimes a Snickers is fucking dope, and sometimes a piece a Reese's Pieces Buttercup is fucking awesome too. I want to be the best Reese's Pieces Buttercup I can possibly be. Just don't be the RC Cola, you know, dude. Don't be the RC Cola, and don't be what are those fucking little uh, those chalky tabs, the the sweethearts. Don't don't be a pack of sweethearts. Be a Snickers bar. Be a Snickers bar or like a payday or something. <laughs> I completely, completely agree with you. Do you get a lot of people asking you for advice on how to make it work, the band thing? Yeah, um, every day I get uh, inbox messages asking, you know, what's your best advice for making the band work or, you know, starting a band or starting to tour or starting to whatever. I'm just, I always tell them, do not ever waste any time dealing with a fucking asshole in the band because I would rather having, I'm no stranger to lineup changes. And I have found, cause the hang, if you're trying to tour the hang and the hanging out in close proximity to another person is what 90% of your time will be spent doing. Yep. I will take a good person that is maybe a, a mediocre musician and make them into a better musician 
than an asshole that's a great musician because there's no turning and changing that asshole. And fuck that guy. I don't want to be around him anyway. Yeah, like like a sociopathic narcissist. Yeah, fuck that guy. So if you're questioning like, oh, we should keep him in the bag he's really good. Nope, fuck that. Don't waste any more time. Get him the fuck out of there if you're asking yourself that. That's the first step, getting the right lineup. And you know what? I think it's easier now than ever. Like I know that when my band was forming, it was close to impossible, close to impossible to find people because all you had was the local area. I had to go beyond the local area, but it was, there's no YouTube. So how would you find these people? It was like a serious mission. Right now you can really find the right people so much easier. You can absolutely, and if you're and if you're willing to work and you know maybe drive a little bit, you can chase your dreams, kids. But uh, I think that's that's the first step of of doing that, solidifying the lineup and building a proper foundation for your house, so to speak. In my opinion, your band is not getting signed because of your YouTube channel. In my opinion, Mm-mm. you might have connections because of YouTube. Sure, you know you have a certain visibility to you, but that's not what's going on because you had a band for years that during your YouTube channel that didn't yeah. get anywhere. So it's not the YouTube channel. It's the it's a successful rebrand and better music. But do you find that some people will will kind of throw that at you? Like you're just getting signed because of YouTube. Yeah, there's been some saltiness and there's been some, oh, well, that's just because, you know, you made it a long time ago. I love that term, you made it. I'm like, what, what, is, it, what is that even? I don't, what did you make? Yeah, like, I, what am I making, cookies? No, we had to make the label aware of what I do because contractually, you know, there has to be, there has to be verbiage of, you know, if I'm writing music, like for my demos, I am allowed to do so. And that is, that is its own thing. And that has nothing to do with, you know, the band output, et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah. Uh, a lot of people just automatically assume like I can call up the a record label, cool guy record label, and be like, hey, sign my band now. And like, I don't know. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low-end, and so forth. 
It's over 500 hours of content. And man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Reason I'm bringing this up is not to like get negative, but it's more because I want people to stop being delusional. So like, you know, with like Billie Eilish, for instance, I talk about this a lot because it struck a chord with me because, uh, because I was accused of the same shit when I got signed. Like your dad bought that record deal. Yeah, right. Like your your dad's in the music industry. That's why. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like some classical conductor knows people at Roadrunner. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> right. But it doesn't work that way. Like you're not nope. going to get signed because of a connection. No. You might get introduced to somebody, but you're mm-hmm. not, nobody is going to sign you because of a connection. If you have a parent in the industry, that's not going to get you signed. Uh, for every child of a parent in the industry, there's about 2,000 more children of parents in the industry who didn't get anywhere. So you look at Billie Eilish and people will say like, well, her mom did voiceovers on some video game. That's that's why. It's like, no, that's not why. There's lots of actors and actresses in Hollywood who have kids who will never go anywhere. And there's a lot of YouTubers out there who will never have a band get signed to a real label and do real tours. Like maybe bigger than your YouTube channel. Yeah, I'm dude, no no one is making a huge financial decision based on a friendship of someone's parent. Like that that is not happening <laughs> but but you know the, the kind of relationship that they're trying to say like that she had or her mother had is actually in reality the kind of thing that happens when you have like Let's say Will Smith's kid, uh, you know, Willow. She gets it, you know, she signs to Sony. Yeah, she probably signed to Sony because her dad is fucking Will Smith. Yeah, okay, that's that's the exception. If you're the Rock's kid, you might get a, a better chance. Yes, of course. But no one out there actually heard uh, Billie Eilish's mom's name and went, oh yeah, I know her, because she wasn't a huge actor. She wasn't. She was in those spaces, and yeah, she probably got her some meetings. That is about it. No one's like, oh, hey, uh, extra in in ER, let me sign your daughter because you're so powerful. <laughs> like, that doesn't happen at all, ever. Yeah, I mean, like, if you're Kirk Douglas's kid, fine. Right. But you still have to be good. Exactly, and the Willow Smith, dude, that record went like I'm pretty sure went number one, and that but that record was for kids. So like adults hear it, they're like, oh, that's the dumbest thing ever, whatever. I whip my hair back and forth, dude. That was the biggest record for twelve year olds ever, and but that's what it was for. Yeah. So I just yeah, people are stupid. It did the job. I think a good example of how your family can't create your career are the Baldwin's. Um, because yeah. I think a whole lot of them tried, and only two of them really won. Yeah, maintained. Yeah, you're right. That's that's a good example. Yeah, and that's that's some Hollywood royalty for you right there. And sure, maybe the nepotism did get some of the other brothers' roles, but sure, that's about as far as it's going to go. And yeah, I get it. Maybe that's a little bit unfair, but hey, 
<laughs> that's that's how it goes. If you're Alec Baldwin's brother, uh, you might get more of a shot than somebody else. But if you're Alec Baldwin's brother and you suck, that shot's not going to last very long. No. Um, now I'm thinking of all these siblings, you know, Patricia and David Arquette and, you know, mm-hmm. Joan and John Cusack. Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes, Maggie. and Maggie. Yeah, dude. But all all of them individually are fucking awesome. Yeah. So yeah, there's always room at the top for the best. What's the name of that girl that's married to Joaquin Phoenix? Rooney Mara. Yes. Her sister is Kate Mara. Mm-hmm. Talent, talented family. Very. That talented. does happen. I mean, Vinnie Paul and Dimebag. Right. Yes. Yes. Exactly. These things do happen. There are TLA and CLA. Van Halen. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, when you have these siblings that both do amazing things or family family uh, legacies like the Churcos or something, mm-hmm. this is not nepotism. This is fucking talent and hard work. These people are just blessed with ability. Nobody could argue about what Vinny and Dime could do, right? Nope. Yeah, nothing to do with, uh, with one person being the brother of somebody else and then getting them... In the door. And their dad was a very successful country music producer, which I'm sure I can hear people going, but his dad was was a country music guy. And he was, yeah. He's that all that meant is he had a studio out and out back of the house that they could go and write their own music in. That's all that did. Yeah. That's it. Those songs didn't write themselves. Nope. Fuck no. How are you balancing the YouTube thing, especially with touring, man? Because I know how hard it is to get anything done on the road besides Dude. besides the touring part. It's so tough. Um, this last tour was a little different from future tours because I think our manager, Joey, really wanted to, wanted to put it to us, so to speak, as far as seeing how far he could break us down. What does that mean? How hard could we really go? Because uh, with the Without cracking? Tour, without cracking and fucking... Having to come and find us in a lonely gas station bathroom crying in the corner or something. Yeah, okay. Out of total exhaustion. But the, And if he's listening, Joe, I love you. Well, I think that's a legitimate test to put you through. Yeah. So the used tour had basically they do one day on, one day off, two days on, two days off. So Bert's voice could, could last that long. Um, and it was like a five-week tour. And so we basically had... We were booked a separate tour in between all of those main show dates. So we uh, we called it the No Days Off Tour. And over, I think it was something like 34 shows or something like that, we had four days off total. Mm-hmm. And we were at NAMM bef- the week before that. So we left straight from NAMM to tour. So we went super, super fucking hard. And I didn't, I was still doing the YouTube thing. I was still shooting videos when I could. But the content shifts, and I still have my entire rig out with me. So I have a, a MacBook, my uh, Universal Audio interface, and my my camera in its own backpack. And I would edit in the van or edit in the you know hotel room uh, instead of sleeping six hours or instead of sleeping eight hours. I'll sleep six hours and edit for two hours before we before a van call the next morning or or something like that. You just have to make it work. So instead of it taking a day to kick out a video would take me three days because, you know, I can only edit an hour at a time or something like that. Or in the, you know, if we get a green room that is away from the stage so we can actually hear and I can hear my headphones, then I would edit there. Um, but yeah, the content has to shift because at home I can do 
amp demos and guitar stuff, but when you're on the road and in a van, you have to kind of pivot for the content. So I was doing things like having people in the crowd that are waiting in line guess our bass player Hans's uh, favorite bands based on how he dresses, and he dresses fucking weird. That was fun, but that video did... <laughs> what are his favorite bands? He's all over the place. He likes Pink Floyd and death metal and everything in between. Sounds about right. Yeah. But that video ended up doing like a quarter million views. So it restored my faith in, okay, people will still watch. You know, if it's good, it's good. And it doesn't always have to be the gear thing. I think the gear thing is kind of tired myself anyway. So I'm, I'm pivoting as a channel as it is. But yeah, I just have to change the type of content I do on the road. But yeah, I'll still be doing and balancing all that shit while still touring and playing shows and all that stuff. It's very, very tough. Two things. First of all, I completely agree that the gear thing is tired. Yeah, it is. It's tired. We get hit up by gear companies to do like reviews and we won't do them because, well, first of all, because we can't do gear reviews because sure. that goes against our uh, neutrality philosophy. Even though we do, you know, we will support certain things like Empire Ears or Road or whatever, but there's always really good reason for it. We're not getting paid for it. But I think that the gear thing, first of all, so many people started doing it that there's that. But then there's also the fact that so many people were called out for basically lying yeah. in their reviews that I think they lost a little bit of credibility. And that's like a that's like a black mark on everybody, even if you do legit reviews. Like the public's uh, acceptance of them isn't what it once was, I think. So that's, nope. so, um, do you feel like I'm at all accurate with that? Yeah, I mean, it's so saturated and so, it, there's so many people doing it for weird reasons, I feel like. What are the weird reasons? Uh, because they want subs and they want numbers and they want money. It's like anything music related, really. Like there is no money in it, but, uh, or they want free gear or something like that. Like I, I started because I just wasn't seeing the videos I was looking for. I was looking to see what the differences between an SM57 and an Audix i5, or the difference between a TS-808 and a full-tone OCD overdrive pedal. So I made the videos I wanted to see, and that was it was nothing more than that. I never made stuff for, you know, fame, fortune, subs, because, like, well, what the fuck is that anyway? But now there's a lot of younger guys that are... You can I can always tell if it's under false pretenses where they're making stuff. I don't know. I think you know it's a popularity contest, and and a lot of these guys uh, are are younger guys. They're not my age. You know, they're not. I'm not talking about the old Englands of the world or Rabia Massad or whatever. Those dudes. No, of course not. No, those those dudes yeah. are so fucking legit and so good at what they do and so talented. You know, the Keith Marrows of the world. Um, yeah, yeah, they they definitely are not. No, that's not yeah. who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the tiny channels that you know don't have a lot of traction yet, or are trying to get a lot of traction, but they're like they're super hyper produced, and I don't know, man. And you can tell that the person has never actually done anything, right? Look, I'm not saying that don't make a YouTube channel if you haven't done anything, but. Uh, if you want to be a thought leader, you need to have some credibility yeah. behind you or what are you doing? Yeah. How are you going to expect people to take you seriously if you don't have a track record? So just think about that. Everyone I know of these YouTubers who have done a good job, like Ola, for instance, yeah. they're legit musicians, 
They're just, they're legit dudes. One thing that always makes me laugh is when they refer to something as like, you know, this is really roadworthy or they will refer to something in a context of touring or playing live. And I'm just like, dude, you're not even, you don't even, you've never even played a show. Like, get out of here. What are you talking about? Ugh, I don't know. Things like that just bug me. Rant yeah. over. Same here. Okay. And then the other thing I was going to say was, I was saying earlier how hard it is to get work done on the road. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think it's easy if you want to. It's hard because the environment is not very conducive to it. And uh, there's a lot of distractions and people get bored. And so they, they'll distract you because they need entertainment. Mm -hmm. You have to put your blinders on. Absolutely. But if you can do that, it's actually a perfect time to get a lot of work done. I try to compartmentalize. So I will, for example, I, I will film something. I will just get the footage and then I'll dump it onto the hard drive. But then I know tomorrow we have a short drive and we'll have, after sound check, we'll have three hours. So I'm going to Google ahead of time where the nearest coffee shop is. For example, I'll pack up my shit and I'll go and edit the video offsite at a coffee shop or... I'll go get something to eat. I'll do it by myself and just go walk off and disappear until it's showtime because that's what I need to do. So you'll just go somewhere that you can work. Yes, uh, find the environment that you need. Um, honestly, most of the green rooms and stuff like that aren't even conducive to like the entire band sitting in them. I mean, it ranges from like absolutely luxurious quarters. But if you're like, you know, we were direct support for the use and we were the only band on that tour besides the use, which is highly unusual and weird and amazing but a lot of these 1,000, you know, 1,200 cap clubs are old theaters that were used for, you know, plays and orchestras back in the early 1900s. So, like, they'll have a single green room, and most of the time you don't get it. So, you're either hanging out in the van or you find somewhere else to go that's quiet and you can actually edit videos. So, I'd, more often than not, I would go and find a, a restaurant like an IHOP or a Denny's. Uh, preferably somewhere better, but uh, sometimes that's the only choices that we have. And get a cup of coffee, get a, get a waffle or something like that, and then just spread out over the biggest table they have. And I would just have video gear everywhere. I'm just editing away. And nobody would give you any problems? No, not if I was ordering, ordering food or anything like that. I would specifically ask, like, put me at a table near an outlet so I can plug my shit in and charge up my phone and my laptop and stuff like that. Normally, they're pretty damn cool these days. Um, I feel like that's maybe not the most unusual ask anymore. Yeah, mo most, of the, uh, most of the IHOPs were really, really cool. Interesting. With that schedule of sleeping a little less, do you find yourself getting more fatigued on the road or like, do you do, you do anything to counteract it? Like, make sure that you're eating right or like, is there anything you do to counteract less sleep? Because you're traveling all the time. You're going to get sick. Like, it's going to wear you down. Yeah. How do you keep your shit together? The diet thing, I never, I never thought it would matter as much as it does when you're traveling and on the road. So, uh, some of the, <laughs> half our band are extremely adventurous while touring, and they will get, they will instantly... They'll eat bad soup. Oh, dude, they'll go for the craziest in the middle of nowhere sushi and they think I'm nuts. And I'm like, dude, we, we are in Kansas. We are so far away from fresh water. 
how can you possibly think that that sushi <laughs> is going to be fucking awesome? And then, oh, they get sick. Shocker. I And like they always give me shit because I think the next tour we're going to call uh, Play It Safe Chicken Tendies Tour because I'm always saying get safe foods. If they're shittier, fine. But if they make you sick, it's going to be so much worse in the long run if you per- are perceivably eating something quote unquote better like sushi or something like that. So, you know, I'll take the things that will not make you sick 100% of the time, like, you know, fried food, or I'll just wait and I'll eat a banana and I'll eat an apple and that'll be it. So like me and our bass player, uh, uh, Hans, uh, we, we try to stick to like some kind of a semi-healthy vegan based diet when we're, when we're touring. If you don't eat right when traveling, if, if you eat top ramen, your your body will crash. Um, our old drummer in Rest Repose, Chris, we did a U.S. tour a few years ago, and he was literally eating Top Ramen for six weeks straight. And dude, he ended up in. We had Ooh, to take him to. A, that's not good. <laughs> we had to take him to a clinic. He was in bad shape. I'm not saying that it was all because of uh, his food, but his immune system was shot, and his and the doctor was basically like, "You need to eat better, man, and <laughs> you won't be so sick if you eat better." And you know, because what you're eating is what you're. You know, cells in, cells out. So the other thing to counteract sleep is to really just uh, drink some coffee and pace yourself. Don't go super hard and just kind of save your energy where you can. So don't, you know, don't show up to the show and like don't use your four hours of uh, of pre-show to, um, you know, go and do something physically rigorous if you've only slept two hours. That will absolutely fucking kill you. Pace yourself. Pace yourself, man. But eat right, pace yourself. You'll be all right. Although I got sick. I got so, so, so sick. Everybody gets sick, though. It was, do we were, so I was gone for basically two months. And on the flight home, I got so sick. And I was sick for fuck three weeks, I think it was. I had a sinus infection and it turned to bronchitis. And like, oh, God. You sure it wasn't the Rona? So I had it before the Rona hit the United States. But okay. But you go to the but you go to the store to, to find anything, any kind of medicine, and people look at you so awfully if you clear your throat or cough or anything. It was pretty funny. Yeah, g- coughing in public now is uh, big no no. Could could get you killed. Yeah, could get you shot, could shot get you your ass kicked. Yeah, fucking burned. <laughs> <laughs> burned at the stake. Fuck it, would throw throw burn him alive. Yeah. Like fucking get rid of that plague. <laughs> So I want to talk about productivity some. Sure. Because, I mean, you've always been a very productive fellow. Thank you. As long as I've known you, obviously. And in your previous career at Boeing, you had to be. Yeah. Like, you get shit done, which is one of the reasons that you have the career that you do, is you get shit done. Not a lot of people do, but being in a band, a sign band, adds a layer of, I guess, constant shit (laughs) that you have to deal with. And I know that YouTube in and of itself is a grind and a half. Yes. So those are two very intense grinds. How are you balancing that and making sure that nothing gets sacrificed? I do have to pivot a little bit. I have to shift. So now I'm in a weird career transition where I have to go from a YouTuber that has a band. So now I am like legit full-time. Technically, I am a band guy that now has a YouTube channel and... You can't have 100% of two things. You can only have 50% of two things at most. The content on the YouTube thing will slow a little bit, but it won't stop. will never stop. But um, man, I don't know. It's just a balance and I'm still figuring it out. 
and I don't have all the answers right now, but I do know, for example, next year we're basically going to be on a world tour and we're going to be gone for a long fucking time. And, you know, the second record will come out and we'll basically do a world tour. I don't know how long it's going to happen, but I do have some plans in place to compartmentalize the video side of it. And I'll probably have some help. Like, for example, I'll probably get you know, someone to edit some of the stuff, maybe, or I'll upload the footage when I get a good Wi-Fi. You edit your own stuff now. I do, yeah. I do everything, every aspect, lighting, shooting, everything. I have no help whatsoever. So I think it's going to be time to offload some of that stuff. Time to delegate. Yeah, it's going to be time to delegate. And there will be, you know, I can I can afford to hire somebody, but I work weird hours sometimes. So, you know, no one can edit my videos faster than I can, obviously. And uh, uh, I'm very, very fast. So it takes me... You know, on a good day, if I have like a full mix song that I need to do, I will wake up, come into the studio, write like a 30, 40 second thing, get that mixed, mastered, done, get the video shot, and I will have a video five hours later, five, six hours later, done and uploaded to YouTube if I'm really cooking. It's pretty fast. I have everything down to a science, and there's not a lot of variables in here, but uh, there's going to be tons of variables out on the road, so... If it's not editing, maybe it'll be other things I'll have to delegate. But also, my bandmates are going to be helping me film stuff because it is important that I keep this going. So, like, our tour manager, Justin, who has a great YouTube channel, he's a eighth-degree black belt karate pro, and that's what he does for a living as a dojo. He manned a camera for all the stuff I did on the road. Hans, our bass player, has helped me man a camera. Um, so, uh, yes, Hans Zimmer is our bass player. But... Um, all the band is collectively, and this goes back to being, you know, the good bandmate dudes. Um, they're like, whatever you need, we will help you. So if you need someone to hold a light, hold a camera, whatever, ask us, lean on us, and we will help you. It's it's now a team. So on the topic of delegation, that's an interesting one because the thing that you were just saying is that no one's going to edit it as fast as you are. And that might be true. But I kind of feel like this is very similar to like when you hire a drum editor or something, with the exception of John Douglas, because he's better than <laughs> everyone. But sometimes when you're delegating something, I've noticed that maybe you have to accept that it's not going to be as good as it would have been if you had done it. True. But sometimes you just have to accept that. But the way I look at it is, say that you delegate something and you get it back and it's 85% as good as you would have done it, well, then you can just do the last 15%. And then instead of spending five hours on it, you're spending 30 minutes on it. In my opinion, it's not about completely passing off everything. Mm -hmm. It's more about passing off large portions of it so that when you get to it, you only have to do a few things and then good to go. Yeah, because in my mind, like, it's all or nothing. But at the same time, what is the cost? Like, oh, man, I'm thinking, like, right now as we're talking, like, man, if I spent an hour or two hours, like, chopping up a video and color grading it and all that stuff, like, that two hours could be spent taking a nap. And that's pretty fucking valuable to me as well. That's exactly what I'm getting at is... What's the cost? True cost. The true cost, the opportunity cost, and yeah. just, man... Staying healthy on the road, I think, also has something to do with how much stress you're under. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so if you're stressing your brain out constantly from the tour and from deadlines, you're going to crack, in my opinion. I think anybody would. So I don't think 
that it has to be all or nothing. And I'm saying this now as someone who used to do everything myself, but now have a pretty yeah. large team. A significant portion of time goes into training people. Yeah. And obviously you have to find the right kind of person, like the kind of person who wants to get better. So like you can train them at what your specific mm-hmm. needs are, but they have to have that inner fire to to want to get good the way that one right. of us did when we were getting started, um, that I, I still have that fire about certain things. So the acceptance that it's not going to be as good as you would have done it is key. You got to live with it. This is something that me and Finn talk about a lot, that what's more important, not getting it done uh, like or having it come 90%, out, like, yeah. like fucking up, yeah, have, fucking up your mo- entire momentum or having it be maybe 90% there, but it, but you keep your momentum. Interesting. It's an interesting question um, because you could say, well, it's got to be 100%. But then again, if you're not putting stuff out, you're kind of fucking yourself. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, because up until this point, I have been a one-man show, but I know I am, I am topped out. Like This is the most I'll ever be able to do by myself, so yeah, it's probably time to start to start delegating that. Anyway, it is like uh, even if I'm not on tour, like maybe maybe the answer is yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe I need to start delegating stuff. Well, I mean, there's just so much stuff that's going to be involved with the band moving yeah. forward, and even if you are home, like writing, and yeah, things that things that take up all kinds of creative energy. Like like you said before, you only have a hundred percent of energy to devote to things, so. Why spend that energy on things that uh, are tasks that an assistant could do? Because now you're going to have to be creative for two things, right? Right. On a serious level, you have to be creative for the band and creative for the channel. That's a lot of creativity. That's a lot of brain power. Like, do you also have to do all of the technical stuff? No. I don't think so. Not really. I hate it when you're right, Al. I hate it when you're right. Me too. Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people hate it when I'm right. <laughs> True. I don't normally hate it when you're right. Only when you're talking about me. Okay, well, we don't have to talk about you. <laughs> so I'm also not suggesting that people start bothering you uh, right now to become your assistant or whatever. I get that a lot anyway, but the fact that I'm at home, I'm like, no, sorry, I'm not going to let someone just come and hang out at my house. And my, my lady's going to be like, who the fuck is that? And like, But editing and stuff, I can upload and send to people. That's, that's not a problem. Yeah, I mean... You know what? I think now would be the best time to do it because you do have the time to train somebody. Yeah, true. It's going to be a lot harder to train somebody when you're touring. Also true. Stop being so right, Al. Stop. I can't. I can't ah, help it. Hate it when you're right. I can't help it. So as far as mental state goes, how are you switching gears between killing it band-wise because, you know, like playing on stage, it's not like you just get no. up there and do it. You have to like get into the right state mm-hmm. of mind to put on a good yep. show, right? And so that starts before the show and then it sometimes got to like cool off afterwards. Yep. So how do you balance that having to go from like extremely different states of mind? Like, you know, the there's calm focused for making videos and then a fucking animal. For stage, like the reason I'm asking is because when I was touring, I found that I did better when I just was an animal all the time. 
it was hard for me to go back and forth. Like I tried to mix projects on the road. It was just, it was just tough, man. Yeah, like, it is. <laughs> so how do you do it? Well, like when we're on tour, I have to have, I have to give myself like little ramp ups and ramp downs. So I will start, it's part of my warm up now, but I'll start stretching and I'll warm, start warming up my fingers on a guitar about 45 minutes before we play. And I'll try, you know, everyone's hanging out and having a good time, but I'll try to kind of shut myself down as far as conversing with people um, or I'll kick whoever's in the dressing room out, non-band people. But, um, if, you know, friends are coming to visiting. I was like, okay, it's time to get out. Like we need, we need to get in the zone. But honestly, the entire day for me is spent ramping up to the ramp up. I have to get my game face on, so to speak, mentally. Yeah. I have to be in that mode, and I don't like being in that mode for long extended periods of time. On stage is fine, but because we go on stage very much ready to fucking kill. We are the underdogs. We have to be, in, in order to even get 60% of the audience's attention when you're the opener, you have to go and give 115%. Yeah, absolutely. Just to win them over. They're not there for you. They consider you a nuisance. That's right. You are in the way of them seeing their favorite band in the world. So you have to go above and beyond every single night. So for me, it starts with when the second I wake up, I am thinking about how I want the show to go, how I want uh, the post-show to go, how I want to feel after the show. All these things get involved, and it's tough because you can't be in that frame of mind while filming a YouTube video on the road and being Mr. fucking, hey, how's it going today on Rust Beards and Gear? So I will allot time. I'm always thinking like two or three days ahead. So I will allot time to allow myself to just kind of either shorten that ramp or lengthen that ramp depending on what I need and depending on the time of show, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds, all, it sounds very neurotic as I'm talking about it out loud, but... <laughs> no, no, it's great. The reason this is relevant to the audience of this podcast is because maybe maybe they don't have this exact scenario, but a lot of them have a day job. Sure. And then want to produce too. And you have to be in two completely oh, states of mind. It's not just about the no, hours no, no, spent, no. right? The hours spent on something, that's one thing. And obviously, you use your time as efficiently as possible. But the frame of mind is a whole other challenge. Like do a full day of work at an office yep. and then come home and have to go into creative mode. That's actually harder mm -hmm. than people might realize. Even if you're really good at keeping a schedule, getting into the right mindset is tough. And I think that especially for going on stage, because it's like you said, it's not just going on stage. You have to be ready to conquer or kind of wasting your time. Yeah, I think looking back, like uh, working the office job at Boeing was really, really good training because I was I was balancing that and making the the early YouTube stuff on my MacBook at my desk with my coat over my head. But like you know, even in the mornings, let's say I get up and I'm getting ready for work. Well, okay, I'm already thinking about when I get home from work. What do I need to get done? So before I leave for work, I'm gonna, for example, I'm gonna set up my lights. Just that little thing, I'm going to set the lights up, I'm going to position them how I want them to be positioned, and I'm going to put the camera on the tripod, so when I come home, that's two less things I have to worry about, and therefore I can get to work faster, so I'm already thinking about what I'm, you know, next two or three steps ahead after, after mm -hmm. work, so I've always been that way, um, I've just 
helping my future self. Uh, and so then I'm always thinking like thanking my past self, so to speak. <laughs> Man, it's a bummer when you try to have a conversation with your past <laughs> self and you're like, dude, you fucked me up. What were you thinking? Yeah. Thanks, how could you? Thanks, bro. How could you? Yeah, fucker. I've had that conversation many times. Yeah, yeah, me too, man. Me too. Yes, it's not so bad anymore, though. The conversations are going better <laughs> these days. <laughs> Present you is is past you tomorrow. Yes. Actually, you know what's funny is I've thought about that a lot. At first, when I thought I saw that sentiment, I was like, self-help yeah. garbage. Uh, it's like, that's cheesy. But as a matter of fact... It is the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and I try to I try to approach every decision I make throughout the day with that in mind because you don't realize but if you don't do that suddenly 5 years have gone by and you're no closer to some goal than you were 5 right. years ago. Yeah. So I try to think about it that way yeah. for sure. That's a good way to do it. What is your pre-show ramp up? Pre-show ramp up is I'll take two Advil because <laughs> I'm old. But um, also the Advil or Advil or Tylenol, it's part of our rider. The Tylenol actually helps with warming down after the show. I just take it about 30 minutes before the show uh, when I'm stretching out. So by the time I'm done jumping around and head banging, I won't have a bang over if I properly stretch and have two Tylenol. But generally I'll just uh, you know do a little widdly widdlies on the guitar and kind of get, uh, get my pick in hand. Uh, stretched out, warmed up. I'll do stretches with uh, my thighs, my legs, you know, shoulders, arms, wrists, and I'll do uh, vocal warm ups because I also scream in the band now. And I'll, I'll do some uh, some basic warm ups. I'll make myself some uh, throat coat. Me, Tony, and Hans all make throat coat tea and uh, start jumping up and down in place and doing some jumping jacks and uh, yeah, like literally preparing for war. It's it's pretty funny. Like then you have our drummer, Kalen, who we just got started uh, warming up with us, but he's he's 23, and uh, he can literally eat, be eating a sandwich, put down the sandwich, go crush, and then come back to the sandwich like it never happened. Like, it's like, how the fuck do you do that? Kevin Talley was like that. That was my drummer. He'd like eat a burrito 20 minutes later, fucking slay it. Yeah. Then, I, I yeah. just, I, I, I don't get it. Like... It's a different type of human. It really is. And uh, yeah. Kalen is an unfucking believable drummer. And he's just like, oh, it's, you know, got like two or three things he enjoys doing in life. He can play video games, eating, and playing drums. That's what he lives for. So for him, it's like going from one awesome thing to the next awesome thing and back to the other awesome thing he was doing before the other awesome thing. So I don't know, man. I, I wish I could do that. I'm Dude, jealous. serious. <laughs> it, for me, it's a big process. And, I don't know. I mean, perception is reality. Maybe that's not like that for him, but uh, it's very casual, it seems, for the most of my other bandmates. But uh, for me, I feel like I'm the guy who's always just like getting in the zone and warming up and like clearing my head and like I have to go be alone in a quiet room with my thoughts and like whatever, man. It's just, it works for me. When I'm recording musicians, especially drummers, I always make them warm up. Sometimes they don't want to, but yeah. the way that I communicate it is. I don't want to record until you have that feeling that you do like three songs into a yes. live set. Like, have you noticed that no matter how much you warm up before the show, it's not enough compared to playing two songs on stage? It's not enough. But taking that a step further, you can never 
condition yourself physically for tour until you've been on tour for at least two weeks. Um, my buddy Nick, in he drums for a band called Unearth. You guys know Unearth, I'm sure. Yeah. My buddy Nick, uh, we, we call it tour conditioning, and we talk about, you know, you can hit the gym before the tour, you can eat right before the tour, and you can stretch out before the tour, but until you've been on tour for like two weeks, you were not physically primed to be on tour and you're still sore and you're still getting in the zone and the mood and all this, all these things, but boil, but boil that down to a daily event. Yeah. You just, dude, I don't know. It's, it's tough. It's weird. Something happens about two weeks in where you're just, you got the flow, I think. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. The flow, the uh, you know, you're loading in and out every night. So it's two weeks when you're finally not absolutely wanting to die from loading all the road cases. You're like, all right, this is fine. Maybe you could tour condition by uh, by playing the set in full intensity and then loading your gear into your vehicle and out of your vehicle every single day. Would that be probably? Proper? Tour conditioning. I used to want, so the first couple of shows we ever played, we went on tour with uh, friends of ours called Dead American, and it's Co from Salesman's new band. I wanted to fucking die when we got off stage for our first two shows. And I was so out of shape, and I really wasn't prepared for playing that kind of music live. And we got home, and I immediately got a gym membership and started going to the gym. And it's made my live show a hundred times better because I was just, I was not, dude, I was just dying. I would get out of breath so badly. Uh, everything would kind of turn red and get real small. And I would feel super, super high from lack of oxygen when I'm screaming and like all this stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to feel like that. Dude, something that Doth used to do is we would, we had a pretty big rig, like full stacks, oh. two base cabinets, like lights and the thing is since we were openers the lights were our own they were all mounted to yep. the cabinets and like we were doing that whole midi light thing before anybody cool. else but it was all set up every single time and on our shit and we would just do these trial runs where we would set a timer set everything up play a mock show tear it down how long did that take yep. and uh we do that for like two weeks, ramping up for a tour. Damn. Yeah, it helped a little. Yeah, dude. That I mean, we we pride ourselves on. So we have boiled our setups down to being so compact, um, just for efficiency sake. There is no band on the planet that is faster on or off stage than us at this point. I promise. There's we are so fucking efficient. Well, I, I believe it. Th that's possible nowadays. There was no, no, it wasn't. Yeah, back then. Would you yeah. have had? Like thinking back, let's say let's say you had the budget for you and your band, would you? Because there is something really fucking cool. Because I've seen your life setup, what it was back then. You had two heads in a rack, yeah, uh, and mm -hmm. the stack and all that stuff. Would you have gone the route of let's say a fractal or a Kemper and something mega small uh, even then? Okay, so um, first of all, in that rig was also a Palmer. And so the, the Palmer would always go to mm -hmm. PA and the cabs were just for us. That's stage. kind of what we do too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's number one. So we already were kind of fucking around with direct yeah. guitars even back then. Um, the, 
the Palmers were great. Yeah. But towards the end, like the last tour, 2010, I took an Axe Effects. Oh, I did not know that. An Axe Effects. Yeah, it was an experiment. I took an Axe Effects with like in-ears and that whole thing. I don't know, man. <laughs> I enjoyed the setup and teardown. That part was great. Same. And our setups and teardowns used to suck because we had these huge racks and like full stacks and like so much shit. And it's so heavy and like it wears on you and try doing 90 days of that. But the Axe Effects was convenient for sure, but it kind of didn't put off the same, we didn't have the same power. It's not the same mojo. The yeah. Basically. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it, I mean, the thing is, though, what I wonder is if everybody had been on the in-ears, would that have made the difference? Because it was only me. Oh, weird. So, yeah, early adopter, I guess. So were you listening to a click? I was listening to a click and myself. Wow, that sounds awkward as fuck. Yeah, uh, it's kind of weird. Yeah, okay. You're, you're brave. You're brave, sir. The dude from Arkspire does that, uh, the guitar player, just a click and himself. I mean, ambiently, obviously, you still hear drums at least. So Yes, you still yeah. hear yeah, drums. Yeah. So it's not it's not like you're not hearing what's going on. For sure. On. Huh. Probably the best I've ever played on tour in my life, too. Because you hear yourself. Now, isn't that funny how that works? Yeah, so that that's the thing. Like, if I could go back or if I was to do it now, I probably would go the in-ear Kemper fractal route. Uh, just because... Man, monitors fucking suck. Dude. Live sound is an atrocious joke. Be in control of your own shit, kids. Um, also, the the modeling has gotten significantly better since 2010 as well. Yeah, absolutely. I would absolutely do Interesting. it. Interesting, okay. So to answer your question, I would not take the refrigerator rig. What about if you didn't have to load your own shit, though? As long as I had the in-ears and no monitors on stage, then... Yeah. Okay, because like the second we can afford roadies, I'm going back to fucking big ass tube amps if possible and fucking four t- 412s. Like I love that shit, but like because I have to haul it, I don't want to haul that stuff. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I hear that. But I guess at the end of the day, whatever makes it easier to hear what's going on yeah. better. Because the worst thing to me, is not being able to know what the fuck is going on. Yep, the worst. Yeah, that that's the, the worst part of playing on stage, yeah. like, from my experience. Yeah, good shit. I don't even know what to say. It's just, think, of how the fuck are you supposed to be accurate when all you could hear is, like, some... A wash. Fucking high, <laughs> like a hi-hat and a wash. <laughs> yeah, we have our own in-ear system, uh, full tilt, you know, in its own rack. All of us are on in-ears, and uh, our drummer just got molded in ears for this last tour. And he was like, oh my God, guys. We're like, yeah, isn't that fucking awesome? And we're all in a click. And we're all, we all have our own mixes. And it's fucking awesome. That sounds luxurious. It's a dream. And no one, the front of house guy cannot fuck us up whatsoever. Do you just send him... A stereo mix. So we give him tails, eight tails uh, coming off our in-ear system. So basically, instead of miking up any cabs, we give him XLR for his patch bays uh, for direct because we're running all Helix stuff. So it's here's here's the two guitars, here's your bass, here's all three vocals, mm-hmm. and and backing tracks or you know ambient stuff in between songs, and, uh, and that's it. And that's all all you have. And then you mic up the drums, but uh, we don't need any of that. And he's just like, 
wow. And they, usually they fucking love us when we tell them that. Yes. So th that makes their job way easier. Yeah. One of the reasons that I think that we sounded pretty good back in those days was because of the Palmers. Uh, we made sound guys' jobs easier, not having to mic guitars and bass. Yeah. Yeah. Like just that set us apart from other bands because people weren't using, there were no Axe Effects yet. So just that, it put the sound guy in a better frame of mind to deal with mixing us. Oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah. We're that band. We, we very much believe in, in making everyone's job easier if possible because a little effort goes a long way. So like we are the band that will, like if we're playing like a headline show, like some small dive bar or whatever, we will ask the sound guy, hey, where's the wedges? You want us to help? And like we will haul their gear up on the stage. You know, you need a, you need a sub moved or something like that. We'll do that. And, you know, we'll help you set up mics. Where's your mic? Uh, where's your mic locker? And like, let's get out the stands for you. Like we're that band that will help and forward everyone because, you know, God forbid everyone sounds good. That makes a huge, huge difference. Uh, and it's so funny how that whole concept of provide value, make people's lives easier that we always talk about at URM for, uh, Absolutely. you know, if you want to get hired. That also kind of applies if you want to be in a band that gets asked to go on tour over and over and over again. Because if you're a difficult band, people, the word will get out. People will know. Like, yep. word, word of mouth is a serious, serious thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, it's the best thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't fake that shit. Nope. So yeah, I always tried to make whoever's life easier, especially if it's like the crew of the headliner. Uh, the crew of the headliner always try to make their lives as easy as possible. <laughs> On this last tour with the used, their crew, like we showed up, their crew is like, you know, they're very much the crew of like, you know, they're all, they've all been touring together for so many years and they are an absolute family. And that respect from them had to be earned. It was never, ever just handed out. Of course. And so like they would spell our name wrong on the, uh, on the dressing room. And like, you know, if, uh, if we said, Oh, Gazoon tight, they would tell us to shut the fuck up. And you know, this is at the beginning of the tour. And then, uh, we, we, we play a few shows and then we buy everyone coffee and cold brew and, Maybe someone uh, needs a better flashlight. So we, we go ahead and at the last truck stop, we got them a new flashlight. Just, just, just to say, we appreciate you. That kind of shit. That went so fucking far. And by the end of the tour, like everyone's homies, everyone's fucking awesome. And uh, we really loved and respected the fact that we had to earn everyone's respect the old fashioned way. You know, they weren't immediately just fucking, hey, you're, we're best friends now because we're touring together. That doesn't mean shit. Yeah, it definitely doesn't work that way. No, it does not. But I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I don't know how it would. Right. It is so fucking annoying when a band fucks up another band's uh, set time or mm -hmm. ability to get their job done or gets in the way of the of their crew. It's so bad for yep. for everything. That's a quick way to get yourself not invited out again. Dude, we were having internal conversations the whole time. Like, do not do anything to get kicked off this tour. I was walking to say hi to Joey, who were sound checking. They just got done sound checking, and the lighting rig was out front where the crowd normally would stand, just for the sake of the sound check, because he was programming all the lights. Uh, Nate, I love you so much. 
I walked across and I was not mindful of the power cable that I had stepped on and I stepped on the, the coupling that hooked up the entire lighting rig to the desk and everything goes and just shuts the fuck down because I stepped on the fucking power to the desk that I should have seen. Oh my God, I thought we were gonna get kicked off the tour. That was show one. That was literally show fucking one. Oh, I wanted to fucking die. How did they deal with it? Nate was like, you know, I don't know. I didn't know Nate. Nate didn't know me. He was like, what the fuck? And I was like, oh my God, I am so sorry, dude. I'm so sorry. I brought him, I, I think we brought him cold brew or something like that. I was just like, dude, I am so fucking sorry. You know, shit happens. What a way to make a first impression. God, dude, that was literally our first impression on the tour. And I was like, I bet you felt like you wanted to shrink to the size of an ant. Dude, I, I thought we, uh, I got my band kicked off this fucking amazing opportunity of a tour. I doubt you would have gotten kicked off for that, but... Uh, you never know, man. I can see why you would think that. Yeah, I just, you don't know. You don't ever want to be the subject of a conversation that is negative in any context. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad you didn't get kicked off either. Yeah, me too. And I hope you never get kicked off a tour. Also, me too. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, I think it's a good place to stop it. Congrats on everything and also Thanks, man. talking to you again. Yeah, dude. Good hangs. See yeah, more often. Always. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio, And of course... Please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.